0: Fathers, we open your word together, we pray that our minds, our hearts, our souls would be open to receive whatever we come here with today, whatever burdens or thoughts or things that might distract us from you, by the power of your Spirit, help us to release that and to hear from you, that we might be challenged and inspired in our faith and become more like Jesus. We ask this in his holy name. Amen. Please be seated. I'm going to begin today with a couple of short sayings that you'll all recognize. They are little proverbs, little collected sayings, except the second half of them is supplied by kindergartners. So, the first half you'll know, the second half you'll. Better to be safe than punched by a fifth grader. (laughs) You can lead a horse to water, but how? If you lie down with the dogs, you'll stink in the morning. Children should be seen and not spanked or grounded. (laughs) And then this is just the same teacher who did this in her class asked kids to come up with anything they would want adults to know. And this is one of them that came up. Think of the biggest number you can. Now add five, then imagine you had that many Twinkies. That is five more than the biggest number you could think of. (laughs) Little kids have a way of looking and thinking about the world that I think adults at times could learn from. But the reason I share those is because as we continue in Ecclesiastes, We're going to get a proverb this morning. Not quite like better to be safe than punched by a fifth grader, but it is a proverb. And it establishes something that he wants us to understand about the world. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at what leads to the proverb and then what he takes away from it. So if you'd like to follow along, grab one of the Pew Bibles, open it up to page 950, Or if you have your own Bible, pull that out too, or phone, or so many ways to access God's Word. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, page 950. We are starting in verse 12. You will see verse 15 is the proverb. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. I told you last week he gave his conclusion at the beginning. Everything is meaningless. And then he gives kind of a summary of why that is true. Now he's moving into how did I arrive there? And here where it says, I've set I applied my mind to study and to explore it's two different Hebrew verbs and it my my family's looking at me like something's weird no okay Um, it's two different Hebrew verbs that cover a whole range of everything from mental study of something to actively examining almost like you were an investigator and that's what he does. It's a very well-rounded look, examination of the world. But he does it all through the lens of wisdom. He's trying to understand the world. And we'll see a few of the things he does later. Continuing, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. What a statement that is. Notice the origin. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. So he wants to extrapolate something that he'll then build the proverb off of. What is that burden? Um, And there's a wonderful little play on words in here where the word busy is used twice. It's the busyness with which God busies mankind is what the author does. So what is this busyness, this burden, this thing that's laid on mankind from God? Come back to Genesis chapter 3. Go toward the beginning of your Bible there, which I'm sure you probably all know that, but just in case. Go to Genesis chapter 3. It's actually rather hard to get there because it's so close to the beginning. Page 4. <laughs> Genesis chapter 3. You need a little background to know what this burden is. So, Genesis chapter 2... Adam and Eve are given the garden, and they are told you can have everything you want but the one tree. If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. You can have everything else. And what we know up to that point is everything is good. We see it in Genesis 1. It's good, it's good, it's good at the very end, it's very good. And then that one thing, not good is man to be alone, but he makes woman, so they're not alone anymore. And they're in the garden. Then the tempter comes, and at the end of chapter 2, they have no shame. They're naked before each other. They don't know fear. They don't know shame. They don't know all the things we struggle with today. But then the tempter comes, they eat, and immediately things change. They want to cover themselves. When God walks into the garden, which seems to be a normal thing he was doing, but it's not normal at that point because they are hiding from God. They are afraid. They may not understand completely what death is at this point, but they do know that God said, if you eat of this, you're going to die. So they are hiding from God. God shows up, and this is what I want you to see. Go to verse 16 of chapter 3. To the woman, God said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree, which I commanded you, you must not eat from. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food, until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Here is the burden. From the moment sin comes in, and all of the shame and the darkness and the hate and the sickness and the evil and all of it, everything we're going to do in life becomes challenging. From childbirth to relationships to occupations, it all becomes a burden that it was not supposed to be. Just to get food, it's going to be by the sweat of your brow. The earth is not going to work with you in the way that I wanted it to work with you when you were in the garden. It's going to produce thorns and thistles. In your relationships, it's not going to be as easy and as beautiful and as simple as it was meant to be. Instead, all of your insecurities... All of your pride, all of your fears, they're going to interfere with your relationships. Can you think of a single person in your life you've not at some point had a struggle with? Whether it's your spouse, your kid, your parents, your friend, your neighbor, your coworker, because all of it, all of it has become a challenge. It has all become a burden, and that is our life. And the first time you see it, Is in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. And I'm not going to read the story, but if you know it, these two brothers, they come and they bring their offerings to the Lord. And the Lord accepts one and not the other. It's Cain's offering that God doesn't accept. So what does he do? He goes and he murders his brother. Now I want you to imagine you're Adam and Eve. You're not sure what death is up to this point. And your first experience is holding your child whose name is Abel. Do you know what that is in Hebrew? Hevel. It's the word from Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, fleeting, futile. This did not have to happen. The relationship did not have to break down, but that is what we live in now, a fallen world that will be challenging in so many facets. To the point that, go back to Ecclesiastes, page 950, Verse 614, he continues, I have seen all things that are done under the sun. All of them are hevel. A chasing after the wind. Um, Fascinating word. The word chasing is often translated as shepherd. Could you imagine shepherding the wind? How hard that would be, how impossible that would be. And that's his image. And so then we get this proverb, what is crooked cannot be straightened, what is lacking cannot be counted. This burden that has been laid on mankind cannot be changed. It's something that is, if it were crooked, it cannot be straightened out. If it's lacking, that is, there's nothing there. So you can't count anything. I I thought of it like this. Um, If you happen to notice when you were walking in, um, at any point, although I think Bev may have cleaned them all up, um, I reached into our shredder and I grabbed a handful of papers out of, out of our shredder. I'm um, here at the church. Not very many, um, but man, these things like I walked from the office to here, set them down, and somehow they are everywhere along the path I went on. And I'm pretty sure they're on paths I didn't go on. Somehow these little things are everywhere. What do you use a shredder for? You want to make sure that people can't read documents that have sensitive information on them, right? So you may put in there something that has a bank account on it or a social security number or whatever to make sure people can't read it. You are trying to take something and, that's crooked and make it impossible to straighten it out. And yet, if you've seen CSI or any of those other kind of things, you know that at times they pull these things out of the shredder and they start lining them up. You know, and they work through until they can find it. And they go, oh, I've got it. I just needed those numbers. And somehow they find just those numbers. Well... To make the Proverbs point, you would take this right here, burn it, take the ashes, and go spread them over the ocean. Now I'd like you to figure out what that paper said. You cannot change the situation we are in. Until eternity, until a new heavens and a new earth, until Christ returns, we will live this challenging life where things are harder than God wanted them to be, where we will struggle with our jobs, with our relationships, with life. That's how it is. As I said when I started the series, there's not a lot of optimism right at the beginning. But we need to accept this. He does, and so here's what Kohelet does after that. Oh man, I'm going to make such a mess. Go back into the text. What can he do? Well, I said to myself, um, this is actually a really beautiful phrase, I had a conversation with my heart. Um, is what it says. I had a conversation with my heart. Look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom. So not only did I go out and get the wisdom, I learned it, I found it, I collected it, but then I set my mind to really explore and understand both the wisdom and its impact. Then I applied myself to understanding wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. Why? For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Now, he's going to explore wisdom throughout the book, and he will say this, and you need to hear it. Wisdom is better than folly. Don't think they're equal. His point here is wisdom cannot save us from our burden. Wisdom is not going to make this go away. As wise as you can get, you will still have these struggles. In fact, wisdom has its own negative. The wiser you get the more sorrow there is to it. The more you understand, the more the burden comes to you. And you may have seen that in your life. Sometimes you gain knowledge about things and you realize it's worse than you thought it was. He says there's a negative to wisdom. Again, he wants you to be wise. This is, a, this is part of wisdom literature. But don't think that just being wise will save you from the problems of the world, it won't. It's not the savior. Here's my warning, I'm gonna reverse this. Beware of hubris. Beware of thinking too highly of yourself for any reason. It might be wisdom, it might be intelligence or athleticism, it might be street smarts, it might be just Experience how long you've lived. There are so many ways we can end up doing this, holding ourselves above other people. And it can be subtle the way we do it. It can come in the form of just, you know, <laughs> looking down on people, but it can also come in the form of not listening to people, not taking people seriously, thinking you have answers when you haven't really looked for all the facts. There are so many ways we can get caught up in our own pride. Here's how I think of it, and, and, and just kind of get this image. I told you over Advent that my son bought me a puzzle, a 500-piece puzzle. I don't do a ton of puzzles, but I do kind of enjoy them when I do them. And this particular puzzle, what made it so interesting is all of the pieces not only were unique, 500 unique pieces, But they were also these odd, weird shapes at points. It was the hardest puzzle I've ever done. But here's a couple of things that happened with me. When you put a puzzle together, where do you start? Edges, right? Yeah, you put the frame together. So I'm pulling all the pieces out. I'm putting the edges together. There's one piece I couldn't find. You know what my first thought was? It's missing. Right? Not that I missed it. It's missing. It's missing. So I went through them again, couldn't find it. Yeah, I know. Later on, I'm working through the puzzle, and and I'm going through different sections of it. And I'd have a piece, and I'd think, oh, perfect, it goes... That doesn't go right there. Or, all right, it's got to be one of these, right? No, that doesn't work, that doesn't work. Oh, I'm missing a piece. Again, not me. (laughs) I'm missing a piece. Guess what? Two-thirds of the way through the puzzle, I found the edge piece that I was missing. (laughs) Guess what? When I got the whole puzzle done, all 500 pieces were there. (laughs) I think that is often how we view other people in particular. We think we know more than we do. We often put the blame on somebody else. That's a form of hubris. And it's not helpful. And honestly, it's part of the fall. This is part of our dysfunctional relationships, it's part of our pride and our insecurities. We must take the time to listen, to ask questions, and to have some humility. All of us would benefit from it. So, number one, he tries wisdom. That didn't work. Here's the second thing he tries. Chapter 2 and verse 1, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. All right, let's see if pleasure can be the answer. If the world's a total mess and it's going to be challenging and a burden on us all the time, what about pleasure? Maybe that can be our answer. But that also proved to be Hevel. Laughter, I said, it's madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind's still guiding me with wisdom. So I'm not sure if his experiments um, was, you know, it seems a little biased because he says I'm out there drinking and partying, but I'm still using wisdom. Um, If you're still using wisdom, you're not drinking enough to understand what partying really... I don't think that's it. He uses his wisdom to try to explore what he goes through. Does pleasure do anything? I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I planted gardens and parks, all kinds of fruit trees... I made reservoirs to water the groves of flourishing trees. I bought female and male slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I will not ask for a raise of hands, but I know a few of you have done this throughout your life. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. Now listen, there was a reward. This particular path he took, there was some pleasure, there was something good, but... Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what my toil did achieve, it was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. So, yes, pleasure does something. But again, it can't be the answer. Why? Well, number one, you have to wake up the next day, right? I mean, and then if you want that same pleasure, what do you got to do? You got to go get it again. It doesn't give you... The lasting meaning, it doesn't make the challenges go away. It gives you a reprieve, and that's it. And he says, so, you know, yeah, there's some advantage to pleasure, but it's not going to help us with our big burden. So here's what he says. There's a burden that is on mankind, and we all know we felt it. We lived through this, and it's not going to change until eternity. But if you want to know the answer to getting through it and overcoming it, it won't be wisdom. Beware of hubris. It won't be pleasure. Beware of hedonism. Both things, they're not going to lead you to overcome this. Use them for what they're meant to be used for. I think, personally, many of the things we seek after, they are to find some amount of meaning but they also have to do with finding worth. All of us have issues at times of our self-worth. We try to solve that by getting smarter, by getting the right people in our lives, by getting the right things, but there is nobody, because of the fall, there is nobody who doesn't have points where they question their worth, and much of the things we pursue is about that. Here's what I want to leave you with. You will never find worth in any of those things that is lasting. You'll find it to be fleeting. You'll find heaven You'll find that in your intellect, you feel really good for a while, or the right people around you who look up to you, you feel really good for a while, but then you'll get in the recesses of your own heart and you'll remember all the insecurities. You'll remember all the things you struggle with, the stuff you think nobody knows about and some of it they don't. You cannot find worth, ultimately, in all of those things. You'll find it, if you're willing to in what we read in the gospel because it is the one unchangeable thing God so loved the world that he gave his son for you what does that tell you about your value what does it tell you about your worth if God is willing to give his son for you how much are you worth in the eyes of God And whose estimation is greater than his. If you can hold on to that, you won't have to pursue the other things to find worth. Let's pray. Father, we've all been through difficulties, we have faced challenges. We know this world isn't perfect. But as we listen to Kohelet's words, help us to really grasp how big the challenges are, the burden is, and to lean into our worth in you, not in all the things we might pursue to find it ourselves. In Jesus' holy name, Amen.